This morning's sermon is going to be titled, Ever-Reforming Worship, and we're going to be taking a look at Leviticus chapters 6 through 7. A while ago, I was accused of being guilty of a tautology in my teaching. A tautology is an unnecessary repetition in speaking about or explaining something. In the ancient world, the Gentiles felt that their repetition, and not only the Gentiles, but also the Jewish leaders, they felt as though if they repeated themselves constantly and what was called vain babble, and when they would do this, this would make them look wise and holy as they were talking to God. In, again, this was in line with their false worship. We see Jesus speaking against this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, Do not be like the Pharisees who uh, repeat themselves, who thinking in their constant repetition and in their vain babbling that they will be heard by God. So Jesus says not to do this. In this context, Jesus is speaking about prayer, that when you're praying, don't constantly say the same thing. You know, in our culture, we have the problem where people will, uh, they'll say the same thing to the point that it becomes mundane or ordinary. For example, when somebody sneezes, we say, God bless you. We have people that don't even believe in God saying, God bless you when you sneeze. We've just made it something very ordinary to say, God bless you, which is very unfortunate. And then you could probably think through the different areas of sayings that we say in our our society. How many people say Merry Christmas, yet people don't even believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus was born into this world, yet they're wishing you a Merry Christmas. Again, quite problematic. We've made those things to be of nothing. So I was accused of a tautology. Again, repeating something. That's what it basically means. And I I was told that I am guilty of this tautology when I teach about baptism, because in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says to go and teach and baptize the nations. And I would make the case that my view of baptism, the baptism that really is required, is that you would hear the gospel, you would be taught the gospel, and that you would be baptized into it. In other words, you would grow in Jesus Christ. You see in 2 Peter chapter 1, it tells you what you need to do to grow in Jesus Christ. It says that if you grow in things such as brotherly kindness, love, knowledge, self-control, that you can be fruitful and useful and effective in your use of the knowledge of God. So that's what we really want to be baptized in. This word baptized in the Greek actually comes from what we would do to a cucumber. You take a cucumber, you baptize it in vinegar, and it becomes a pickle. Now, that's what the true context of baptism is. It's putting something into a a solution so that it changes the composition of what it originally was. So unfortunately, in the contemporary Christian church, we have a lot of people that have confused this with water baptism, as if water baptism does some sort of change to you. Uh, We see Peter talk about this, and he says that, that it's not the washing of the filth from the body, but of the clearing of our conscience toward God. And the way that we clear our conscience toward God is we grow in things such as love, brotherly kindness, knowledge, self-control, and the things listed there in 2 Peter chapter 1. So I've made the case that that is to be baptized into Jesus Christ. So what Jesus Christ thereby is saying is to go and teach the nations and help them become disciples by immersing them into my truth. I don't believe that to be a tautology. I believe that uh, that works, that that's what he's actually saying. In our contemporary culture, though, I understand it is frustrating to hear somebody repeat something you have already heard or know, right? It's a contemporary thing. I'll hear somebody say something, and uh, I know I'll say, oh, but I already heard this. I don't know. I want to hear it again. 
However, as one commentator remarked, the Bible was written in a time of a primarily oral culture. Repetition is often used to emphasize something or to drive home a point and to make things easier to remember. You might think of Jesus constantly says, truly, truly, I say to you. He always says it twice. Um, so, So important things were often repeated a bunch of times in slightly different ways to make it easier to remember. If you didn't remember it the first several ways that it was said, you will surely hear it as we keep saying it over and over again. Eventually it will sink in. I've said this before. In reading through the scriptures, when we get to the book of Leviticus, this usually is, and usually due to the fact that it constantly repeats the same points again and again, um, and then it brings up so many historical details and wordy sentences, which I'm going to talk about here in a moment, that we often stop reading. Most people, when they start out, they get to Genesis, they get through Exodus. Once they get to Leviticus, they're done. They're not reading anymore. And what that means is you've read two out of the 66 books that are in the Bible. Hardly could be called reading the Bible. So how do we get past Leviticus? Well, I'm going to promise you it need not be the case to be dismayed when you read the constant repetitious things. There's ways for this to make sense and to be helpful in your understanding the Bible. Another thing I want to mention is that how the Bible... Uh, reads very wordy. Sometimes you read the Bible and it's like, what does that even mean? It sounds like the, the sentence has extra words added to it. The reason being is that the Bible, remember, is an English translation of Hebrew and Greek. And I'm going to use the Old Testament here because we're talking about Leviticus. Um, the Hebrew, oftentimes, because the Hebrew simplicity, two words, might become 15-word sentence in English. Because the Hebrew is simple and can mean a lot of things. The English language has, needs a lot of ways to describe what we're saying. Hebrew also uses a lot of prefixes, such as joining words. So and and for are not separate words. They're connected to the bigger word. So there's less words overall in their sentences. <clears throat> so if you spoke Hebrew and you read the same passage in Hebrew, it would be a lot shorter and sound a, less lot, a, a lot less redundant. A typical example would be in Numbers chapter 7. In the English, it says this, and for a sacrifice of peace offerings. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six words for a sacrifice of peace offerings. In the Hebrew, zavak <clears> hashayim, <throat> two words. That's it. That's the whole sentence. So it's a lot shorter in the Hebrew than it is in when we have to break it out into the English. So when you're reading in your English Bible, that's why sometimes it becomes more wordy. Also, another point is that when we see similar information and details being made, like a lot of times we'll get to Leviticus and we'll say, oh, but I've already read this stuff so many times. What we want to understand is that it's not always saying the same exact thing. That just because it's repeating the same similar points, it's not necessarily changing, you know, or speaking about the same exact points it was in other places. I imagine you noticed that if you read Exodus and Leviticus, and I know most of us have read the Bible, um, when we read Exodus and Leviticus, we see that they're very close to what we see in Deuteronomy. That specific mass repetition is largely in part because the end of the Exodus and Leviticus were a historical record of Israel right after they left Egypt. But then as we learn about in Numbers, they weren't obedient to God and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert until almost the entire previous generation had died. So Deuteronomy is in large part Moses' final speech to this new generation of Israelites just before they enter the promised land. 
as most of them had been, hadn't been born when this important message from God was delivered the first time. You see, that's very significant. And that should cause you to read the book of Deuteronomy a little bit different than you will read the details at the end of Exodus or the details that you read about in Leviticus. I had read this quote earlier this week that I believe applies in regards to what I want to share with us this morning. And it's from John of Christostrom, 4th century church father. He said, To get the full flavor of an herb, it must be pressed between the fingers. So it is the same with the scriptures. The more familiar they become, the more they reveal their hidden treasures and yield their indescribable riches. Today we're going to see a review of the sacrifices in Leviticus that we've covered for the past two weeks, but we're going to see them with a bit more detail this week. So today's chapters uh, 6 through 7 of Leviticus bring us to the close of this portion of Scripture. Ultimately, what we've been reading about and covering is the laws of the sacrifices. You see, in Leviticus, particularly the passages we're going to read today, we see what we would call proper worship. So proper worship is what God had ordained for Israel to follow. Their proper worship was never and could never become true and spiritual worship. And that's the worship that the Father desires. We see this in John chapter 4, verse 24. So again, I believe very clearly that um, if we look at that quote I had mentioned from John of Christostrom, where if we take the scriptures and we squeeze them between our fingers, so to speak, as you would an herb that you want to get a good scent out of, if you really press in and try to understand the depth of the scriptures, that it's only then that we can truly see what they point to, which is true and spiritual worship. This is Jesus Christ. These are the hidden treasures and the indescribable riches of the scriptures. The sacrificial things we we read about here in Leviticus are hardly what God would want. He didn't care about an animal being burnt on an altar. That was supposed to point to something else. Supposed to point us to what true worship would become. The true burnt sacrifice that God would allow to be crucified, to be put upon an altar, so to speak, and sacrificed for his glory. We see all of these sacrifices summed up in Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we mentioned earlier in our hymnal, when we did our responsive reading from the book of Hebrews, where we mentioned that there's no other sacrifice except that which was offered up by Jesus Christ, and that was himself. Jesus Christ is our true Savior. Without him, we would have a proper religion that points to a true religion, but it would never give us the true religion. It would never give us the blessings of what a true religion can give us that which we have in Jesus. Without Jesus, we would have a hope, but we wouldn't have anything. We'd have a hope for something, but we wouldn't have it. And we see in the book of Proverbs, it says that a hope deferred or a hope pushed far off, meaning a hope that seems impossible, is no hope at all. A hope far off is no hope at all. However, a longing fulfilled, meaning something that seems possible and can actually be fulfilled, is a tree of life. It's the very blessing of life itself. So Jesus Christ gives us a hope that has a having in it, that we can have something, eternal life. Without Jesus Christ, we would have a religion that pointed to death rather than what we have in Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, and we have his life. And then, of course, consider all that Christianity has done in the world. The scientific revolution was spawned by Christianity. If it wasn't for us realizing a rational God, we would not see a, um, 
if we weren't experiencing that through Christianity, we wouldn't have what we have today in our society, even the, the things that we take for granted. And then, of course, we could go around the room and we can say our lives, our lives in Christ, we would not have that had we not had the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So now that we are in Christ, 2,000 years of a beautiful legacy, we seem to have become content with what we have, rather than seeing, as the ancients did, the need for constant repetition and re-examination. The need to constantly squeeze the scriptures between our fingers so that they would reveal to us their hidden treasures and their indescribable riches. That's why I've entitled this morning's sermon, Ever-Reforming Worship. Because everything we're talking about here in regards to the sacrifices is true worship. So we know that they point to Jesus, true worship. However, there's this need to always be reforming in our effort, meaning just the way that they looked at their sacrifices and they constantly needed the sacrifices to be repeated over and over again in different ways so that they could remember what the sacrifices were talking about. We, the church, need to do the same thing in our worship of Jesus Christ. In the Latin, this is called semper reformanda. It means ever-reforming, ever-changing. This was the motto of the Protestant Revolution or Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation's time, they believed that the, that the external religion, which Catholicism had bolstered, was leading people to disregard the need for true repentance and true religion in their heart. That they could just have an outward adornment of religion. They saw the great danger of their day, not as false doctrines, not as superstition or idolatry, but as formalism. The danger of formalism is that a church member could subscribe to true doctrine, could participate in true worship in a biblically regulated church, and yet still not have true faith. And I would agree with them. I think that's true. I think that they were onto something, and that's why we believe that in the the five solas, so to speak, you know, by faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, by Christ alone. And I'm missing one, but I don't remember what it is. Um, by Scripture alone. There it is. Got five. So uh, that's our five things that you know we would say we've learned from the Protestant Refor- Reformation due to the ever-reforming institution of the church. The fact that we're going to always be changing, always challenging ourselves, always repeating, always re-examining the same points to become stronger in those things. I believe we need to do this in all regards. So that being so, let me take us over to the text here in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 8, and I'm not going to read through the entire text. I'm just going to make some points going through the text. Verses 8 through 13 in Leviticus chapter 6 talk about what we would call the burnt offering. This is, as we noted a couple weeks ago, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. I had mentioned that's the one sacrifice that makes sense to me. There's three sweet-smelling sacrifices and two non-sweet-smelling sacrifices that God desires. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not in the custom of saying, hmm, can you give me a bad smell? I'll take a good smell, not a bad smell. So the good-smelling, sweet-smelling sacrifices make sense. The two bad ones to me, and you'll understand why they don't make sense, because they simply don't make sense. They're not good. And uh, that's why they have a bad smell. So the first one, this burnt offering, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, what it ultimately points to is surrender to God. It was the first sacrifice you would offer in the temple. 
And this would represent that you actually thought it was important to come to God. In our lives, we might we don't have to go and find a bullock and you know a ram and put them on that altar. But we know what is required of us if we truly believe in a sovereign God, prayer. If we truly believe that God is in charge of this world and we're in need of edification from him, we know the need of prayer. What I thought was interesting when you look at the text here in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 through 13, and you read about this burnt offering, it says in verse 13, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. So in my, my reading, I began to think, well, what is this teaching me about true worship? If that's how I'm approaching this text, is what is this text going to teach me in my life today about true worship? Where do I read about a fire that will always be burning? What should this make me think about when I think about this burnt offering? And sure enough, if you go back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, you go to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14, you see that God is an all-consuming fire. So the burnt offering, what it's supposed to make you think about is your surrender to God. It should make you think about God in general, your need to be praying to him and being in communication with God. And sure enough, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, we see the same thing. So the New Testament teachers believe the same thing. God is an all-consuming fire. As we move further, we see the next offering is the meat offering, another sweet-smelling sacrifice. However, the strange thing about this offering is that the meat offering has no meat. It's only flour and oil and frankincense put upon the altar. No meat at all. So it'd be better called the food offering or you know the, something else other than the meat offering. However, meat in Scripture is often used to talk about food in general. So this meat offering, this sweet-smelling sacrifice in Leviticus 6, 14 through 18, is devotion. It represents devotion to God. It's our praise, right? We see in the book of Hebrews that the one sacrifice that God requires from us now that Jesus Christ has laid down his life is that God requires a sacrifice of praise, the praise of fruitful lips, praise that is doing the work of God. This is our devotion to God. In verse 17, it says that it shall not be baked with leaven. And I thought that was interesting. I said, well, you know, in scripture, leaven represents sin. So your praises shall not come to God with sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, they're told to remove the brother that is among them that is being disorderly because he is like leaven and he will leaven the whole lump. Remove him. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, we see the same thing. So what does it mean that our offering of praise shall not be with sin? And I'd like to correlate that to Jesus when Jesus begins to say that if you have an offense against your brother, that instead of just going to God and saying, God, I hope that you forgive me for offending my brother and stealing his $50 or whatever it might be. I promise you I didn't steal $50 from my brother. Um, now, uh, if, uh, if I did that, you know, I go to God, God, I'm sorry that I did this and that. Jesus says, no, no. You need to turn around. You need to go to your brother first. Give your brother back his $50. Apologize to him. Deal with that. And then come to the house of God and pray to me that I'll forgive you for your sins. You see, make restitution. And we talked about that last week. The need for restitution. The need to go above and beyond and to let our yes mean yes, our no mean no, and let our apologies be sure. So I would say that our praises need to come with action. They need to come with our desire to move away from being affected by sin. Then in Leviticus chapter 6, continuing here, verses 24 through 30, we read about a sin offering. And that shouldn't be a surprise that the sin offering is a bad-smelling offering, right? That should be one of the ones that would be bad. And that makes sense. 
This sin offering, as I mentioned last week, is not, when we talk about sin, we think about things we do bad. In the Levitical law, sin was the things that you do without realizing you're doing them. Because again, there's 613 laws in the law of Moses. And if you lived a Jewish life, you would imagine there'd be weeks where you went by and you committed a sin that you probably didn't realize you committed. You know, you forget it. There, I'm not going to go through all 613, but there's something you could have did wrong. You could have had a bad thought, whatever it might be. And what this was meant to point us to is that we're all sinners in need of a savior. We're all sinners. That's it. We're all guilty of sin. So we all need to come to God for something. We all need to come to him with a sin offering and offer up a bad smelling sacrifice, as strange as that might seem to me. So what do you believe in our matter of worship as the church? If I said that the burnt offering is prayer, the meat offering is praise, what do you think sin offering might point to in our worship as Christians? Well, every first Sunday of the month here at Blue Point Bible Church, we participate in the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is surely what sin offering points to. And I'll show you that here in the text. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 6, verses 26 through 27, we read this. The priest that offers the sin offering shall offer it in the holy place, in the gathering of the congregation. Whosoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. So I'm going to stop there. You can continue reading on your own time. However, think about that. Here we come into church, we come into the assembly of the congregation, and we participate in this beautiful ceremony as the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we often say, Jesus gave up his flesh for us that we might be made holy, or that he gave up his flesh for us that we might partake of it in remembrance of him, that we would be made holy. Jesus reminded us, as our Father is holy, so we shall be holy. So, This sin offering, which we celebrate at the Lord's table, which points to the Lord's table, is ultimately a celebration of what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 54. He said that if you are a follower of me, you must eat of my flesh. Again, this sin offering clearly points to the Lord's Supper. The next offering we see in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is the trespass offering. Trespass offering, similar to the sin offering, is a bad-smelling sacrifice. This non-sweet, I call it bad, the scriptures call it non-sweet-smelling sacrifice, um, means is a sacrifice that would be required of you when you willfully violated the rights of another person or you willfully violated your oath to God or your covenant with God. Um, In Leviticus chapter 5, we see a little bit of a list of the things that really mattered there that you would commit, um, that you would do, that you would need to offer up a trespass offering. What I thought was interesting is in verse 8, Leviticus chapter 7, verse 8, it says this, And the priests that offer any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself skin the burnt offering which he has offered. Where else in Scripture do we read about animals being skinned that would seem to point to our matters of worship? Well, sure enough, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read that when Adam sinned against God, when he created, when he committed a trespass against God and his wife, that God removed him from the garden and covered him with animal skins. Interesting. So this trespass offering should remind us of what happened with Adam 
So let's talk about what happened with Adam for a moment. Adam was given a command from God, was told not to eat. He was free to eat of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you are not to eat. The day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Then God creates a helper for Adam and blesses him with this flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Bones of his bones? Yeah. So blesses him with this. And uh, in my understanding, in my theology, and in my experience of life, I believe Adam was like amazed and was like, whoa, this was made from me? Wow, God really is a God of wonders. And, um, you know, so that would be my understanding. And um, what does Adam do next? Some would say Adam failed to teach his wife the right way of thinking. So his wife, when she, the serpent thereby comes, she responds and says, the Lord has said that we shall not touch or eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God never said that. God said you shall not eat the day you eat. He never said anything about touching. Why did she add a word to that? Why did she say that he should not touch? In my understanding, some may disagree with me, but I believe that that was Adam's fault. I believe Adam failed to appropriately teach his wife. He did what every other priest seems to do, added to the word of God. And that's what we must think about when we think about a trespass offering, is Adam's sins. Adam failing to walk worthy of the blessings that God had given him. And think about that. We all do that. Failing to appreciate what God had given him and walking worthy therein. Trespass offering points us to the failure of our righteousness and the need for Christ's. In Leviticus chapter 7, our last offering we read about here is in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 21, is the peace offering. And of course, a peace offering is going to be a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And this peace offering represents thanksgiving. It represents the hope of Israel being fulfilled. How would God redeem the people of Israel and bring the Gentiles to share in that blessing? Well, he would do it through Jesus Christ. And when he does it, which it says in uh, the book of Leviticus, um, the book of Ephesians, that Jesus is our peace offering, that he is our peace, bringing together Jew and Gentile, thereby fulfilling the hope of Israel. And that's what the people of God give thanks to God for, is his confirming the promises to the fathers and his mercy to the Gentiles. We see that in Romans chapter 15. What I find interesting about the peace offering is in verses 20 through 21, it says, but the soul that eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that pertains to the Lord, having his uncleanliness upon him, even that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Moreover, the soul that shall touch any unclean thing as the uncleanliness of man or any unclean beast or any abomination and eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which pertains to the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from among the people. So you can see here that it's a serious thing to eat of the peace offering and to be unclean. I already can imagine some of you thinking and saying and muttering in your mind, but we're all unclean, right? Our righteousness is as filthy rags as as Isaiah says it. So what are you saying? Well, I'm surely not saying that none of us are going to be a part of this or that we all need to be cut off. So what I'm going to point out is that the uncleanliness here has to do more with our standing in our relationship with God than with chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, Jesus gives a parable about a wedding banquet. 
And he shares and he says that they went the first time. He sent his servants out. He prepared a beautiful wedding banquet. He sends his servants out the first time to the people and invite them to come to the wedding banquet. The people mistreat them. Some of them ignore them. Some of them kill them. Kill all the servants. So obviously, you know, the, the guy that creates the wedding banquet's like, okay. Uh, then he says, yeah, I'm going to send a second group of people. He sends a second group. No surprise. The people ignore them, beat them, kill them, and mistreat them. So then finally, the guy says, you know what? I'm going to send my servants out a third time, but this time my servants are going to go to those that are in the highways and byways that are all the way out there, far off, and invite them to come. And sure enough, they do. They rejoice. They come. And then when they get there, the, the man that created this feast comes out and begins to walk around, and he notices some of these people are not wearing wedding garments. Well, get them out. Bind them up, tie them up, and throw them outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's the parable Jesus gives. So, a lot of times what that leads us to think is, well, where did they get the wedding garment? Why did he throw out the people that didn't have a wedding garment? Where'd you get one? How'd you get a wedding garment? And I'm going to tell you that the scripture doesn't say how you get a wedding garment. In Revelation chapter, I believe the first couple chapters, there's a passage there that says, um, buy, of, buy from me white raiment, like a white coat. The, and people, I know my Arminian friends would say, well, uh, that means that you can buy it, you can have it, you can purchase it from Jesus. I would say no, that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation make it clear that it was written to the church. So it's inspiring the believer that he's put off his coat and he needs to buy from Jesus the coat that he therefore had. I will make my case that the uncleanliness of a person is not something we can do or we can decide to do. It's something that will come from God changing our minds and our hearts. And that is what that is the coat that we need to enter into the gates of the kingdom in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. I believe that's also bolstered by James chapter 1, verse 23, where it tells us about the man that looks in the mirror, sees what he is, and then therefore walks away from the mirror and forgets. That we should not be that man. If we're in Christ... If we know we're in Christ, we're covered in his righteousness. We are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and letting all things be added to us as Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 says. Then we can know that that's our identity and we should not be as a man that says this is my identity and then walks away from the mirror and forgets who he is. That's, that will make us unclean. Walk in our identity, saints. But our identity doesn't come from our own righteousness lest we ever dare think that. And then, of course, if you continue into Leviticus, to finish off the portion of the reading here, um, you read about the law against eating fat and blood. I know a couple of us uh, had talked about having great steak and loving prime rib. Um, you know, I, I don't know anybody that eats prime rib and doesn't eat fat and blood in the prime rib. So, obviously, we, believe, we don't believe we're a part of this Levitical law. Thank God. And then the priest portion. And we are the priests. That's why, in our reading, we're not reading this as applying to priests of the Levitical law. We're reading this as applying to our worship of God through Jesus Christ. So not only in these details, but through seeing how the word constantly challenges the people of God with new, fresh insight. A lot of times saying the same thing, but from a different angle, sharing different details, or maybe even building on top of what was already said. What we must know from all of this this morning is that it's important to be diligent in understanding these things. When we think of our worship, our contemporary Christian worship, and I'm talking about our individual worship in our own lives, our devotion to God, and our collective worship as an assembly, what has God said about what this should look like? 
What do we need to hear again and again? What maybe do we need to repeat like Israel did their sacrifices again and again to make sure they were doing it right, to make sure they were really bringing it to God with the right attitude? What is he saying now? Because we know that God has, you know, he, he put out proper worship and then he brought us into true worship. So God can say different things at different times, different seasons, if you will. Where is reform needed and change needed? We've seen in the laws, and we're going to see that even more, that there was reform brought into the sacrificial understandings. Where is God telling us to go in regards to our worship? I'll tell you what, here at Blue Point Bible Church, where he's telling you to go is to join us for our worship committee meeting next Sunday after our fellowship, after our worship service. So after worship, we're going to go into the fellowship room, and we're going to talk a little bit about our world, a little bit about our worship here at Blue Point Bible Church. I do hope that you'll consider joining me. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 37, pretty much summarizes what we talked about this morning. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, of the sin offering, and the trespass offering, and of the consecrations and the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have fulfilled these sacrifices that we would not think that we have to come before you or we would not dare think that we can come before you, Lord, with a sacrifice of our own, our own righteousness, to say, Lord, look what I have done so that I might have a right relationship with you. Lord, no. May we rejoice in what you have done for us, that you loved us while we were yet sinners, that it is you that changed our hearts and our minds. And that we would know that the sacrifice has already been fulfilled. That there is a once and for all sacrifice that all men must know, must partake of, and be saved in and through. And that is Jesus, Lord. We thank you for what you have made known to us. We thank you for the indescribable riches, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.